and uh, Pastor Chuck is away. He's at Light in the Desert, our uh, church replant. He's preaching there uh, this morning, so pray for him and for that church. And typically, we preach through a book of the Bible, passage by passage, taking one passage at a time till we've completed that book. And we'll get back to that next week as Pastor Chuck will return, and he will be taking us over the next few weeks through the book of Ruth. So we'd encourage you to read through that book now. Uh, gather together with a couple of people and read through that book. It's a short book. We'll be in that the next few weeks uh, to go through that. But today, this morning, brings a close to our series on the church. We've been in select passages in the book of Matthew, as we've seen from the very words of Jesus, who the church ought to be. And today we're in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 51. So I encourage you to open your Bibles, uh, Matthew 24. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you, and it's on page 484 of those Bibles, Matthew 24, verses 36 through 51. And we'll, we'll see today from this passage that the church, the people of God, are to be a people who waits, a people who waits expectantly, a people who are preparing even as they wait. So the main idea today is that the church looks forward to Christ's return with preparation and in anticipation. Uh, Christina Moore is going to come up and read. Again, Matthew 24, verses 36 through 51. And uh, I know we have a tradition of, of applauding after someone reads. Let's not do that today. Let's give her a hand now. We all love Christina. She's going to read. I think you'll see why as she ends this passage. So uh, Matthew 24, 36 through 51. Good morning. Um, the passage is Matthew 24, 36 through 51. But conquering that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days... Before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have, been, would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in, into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you, 
interesting. So it ends on such an uplifting note, doesn't it? Uh, listen, th this is a counter-cultural passage for us today in a lot of ways. There's a lot of things in here that, that are very different from what we want and what we expect. Uh, we don't like to wait. We, we're in a microwave society. We want things to be done for us right now. We don't like to wait. Uh, we don't like to think that we need a savior. We tend to, to say, I'll do it myself. I'll take care of it myself. Uh, we don't like to think that we'll be judged. We don't think that we need to be prepared. We, we tend to think that we can just wing it. We'll just take care of it uh, whenever it comes up. So very different things in this passage today than perhaps we're used to. And my hope is that believers will see this passage as encouragement from Jesus regarding our future. That Jesus is trustworthy. That he keeps his promises and that he's returning. And that, that's ultimately for our good, that he is returning. My hope is that those who are here today that, that maybe don't know Jesus, that are not yet believers, my hope for you is that you'll consider that what you do believe does actually make a difference, makes an eternal difference. So in this passage, we see that Christ's people, the church, are an expectant people. So we're going to break this down into three sections. We're going to talk about uh, Christ's return, and then on judgment, and then on preparation. And we'll start with Christ's return. So possibly from the moment that Jesus talked about returning, and he, he mentioned his return often. If, you'll, if you're looking at the book of Matthew, you'll see that Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, most of those chapters, Jesus is talking about his return. So anyway, possibly from the moment that he talked about his return, people have been wondering about it, and people have been predicting when he would return. We like to make predictions. I, in preparation for this, I, I read that a third, it's been estimated that a third of evangelical Christians in America predict that Christ will return before they die. So in their lifetime, Christ is going to return. If that's true, then a third of us here today are believing that Christ is going to, are predicting that Christ is going to return in our lifetime. But Predicting his return is, is not just a popular thing today. It's, it's popular going way, way back. So let me just share a few of these with you, uh, a few of these predictions. There's three Christian theologians, including Hippolytus of Rome and Irenaeus. They predicted that Jesus would return in the year 500. And don't ask me how they did this, but they based that prediction on somehow using the dimensions of Noah's Ark. So take that for what it is, which is wrong. They were wrong. So... There are several popes that several popes that predicted his return, including Pope Sylvester II predicted January 1st, 1000. The Italian painter Botticelli believed Jesus would return in 1504. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, believed or predicted 1836. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses have made several predictions, uh, beginning in the 1900s or 1800s all the way up to the 1900s. Uh, Joseph Smith, the leader of the Mormon religion, predicted 1891. Isaac Newton, 2000. Uh, the televangelist Jerry Falwell predicted Christ to return sometime before 2009. And then some of you may have heard more recently Harold Camping from uh, California. I think, he's, I think he's dead now, so I don't think he can make any more wrong predictions. But uh, he predicted, his, he made several predictions. His last was in 2011. 
And then, not to be outdone, there are future predictions ranging all the way from 2019 all the way to 2057. So people like to predict when Christ is going to return. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That, that seems pretty clear. And I think it's easy, as I maybe just did wrongly, just did, it's easy to mock those failed predictors. Um, some of them were sincere, I'm sure. Some of them were sincere. Some of them were a little bit uh, lacking in some mental capacities. So some of them were a little bit loopy at best. But regardless, they were, they were misguided. Whether they were sincere or crazy, they were misguided. And in verse 36, we see the genuine humanity of Jesus. He humbled himself by taking on the limitations of humanity. And yet, simultaneously, he retained his divinity. So Jesus' words serve as a stark reminder that no man knows the timing. No man knows the timing of Christ's return. And we should flat out reject anyone who claims to know the date of the return of Christ. But I, I think it would be wrong for us to, to just flat out dismiss these people. We should also respond to them with uh, those who make precise predictions with, with the acknowledgement that their desire to predict draws on and promotes an eager expectation for Christ. They were looking forward to Christ's return. That's why they were predicting his return. They were restless for Christ. And, and I think if, if we're honest, we have to admit that we're not restless enough. We don't think enough about his return. We're not looking forward to it enough. Isn't that true, don't you think? Don't we know when our, if you, if you love football, don't you know and think about and are aware of, spend a lot of time thinking about when the next game is? That your team is going to play. Or if you love holidays, you have a favorite holiday, you do a lot of preparation for that holiday, getting ready for it. We think far more about those things than we do about the return of Christ. Of course, we don't know when Christ is going to return, but we know that he will return. And that's far more important than knowing the when. So just in this one chapter, Jesus spoke very frankly about his return. So in opposition to the folks that I just mentioned, Jesus always keeps his promises. And not once has he said something that wasn't true. God is truth. And our certainty regarding the return of Christ is not based on our ability to calculate a date. It's based on the strength of God's character. And that ought to humble us. It ought to humble us recognizing that his return is totally dependent on God that we don't know when he's going to return. Let me say this another way. When we wait for Jesus, we do so not because we're confident in a certain date of his return. We wait because we trust Christ. We trust his word. The Apostle Peter said, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So God always keeps his promises, and we live confidently in light of his return. So our ignorance of the date of his return requires from us a mixture of expectation and also of humble patience. But beyond all that, history shows that the, the followers of these people, many of the followers of these people that I mentioned that, that made predictions, uh, they 
They were often unproductive. Many of them would quit their jobs. They sold their property. They emptied their bank accounts because they were expecting Christ to return at some uh, imminent time, which I, I guess if you're going to be lazy and unproductive, uh, there's probably no better excuse for that than uh, that you say that you're waiting on Christ's return. So maybe if you're lazy and unproductive, keep that in mind. But Christ, on the contrary, he commands the opposite. He commands the opposite. In Mark 13, he tells the story of a man who went on a journey, and he left his servants in charge. And he told the gatekeeper to stay awake, just like he does here. Jesus then tells his disciples to stay awake, because they don't know when he's going to return. So staying awake, both in Mark 13 and in this passage, doesn't mean trying to figure out when he's going to return. It means living out your life while we eagerly await his return. So we may not know when Christ, return, Christ, Christ will return, but we do know that it will be sudden. Jesus makes that abundantly clear by referring to Noah. Prior to the flood, people were eating, drinking, marrying. They were just living their life just as, just as you and I do. Everything was normal until the flood came and it swept everything away. And that's the way it will be when Jesus returns. Two men working in the field, two women at work preparing food for their family. One is taken and one is left. So the point is that people will be living out their lives when to their surprise and with no warning, Jesus returns in judgment. So beware of thinking that all of this stuff of life will last. Because when Jesus returns, it will be gone. It will be turned upside down in an instant. Second, on judgment. When Jesus returns, and whenever that is, it will be too late to rethink your life. It will be too late to adjust your priorities. He'll return in judgment, and his judgment will be irreversible. And I think that's a scary thing. It's often misunderstood by people. It's not much liked by uh, people on the surface, but let, let's stop and, and think about judgment for just a moment. I think we actually like judgment, at least, when, uh, at least in cer certain circumstances. So if we have a just judge and we've been wronged, we really like judgment. Just as an example of that, have, have you ever been in the grocery store or in a restaurant, you come out to your car and someone has hit your car? Or there's a, a giant, as you go to open your door, there's a big dent where somebody has dinged your car. And so the first thing you do is you go and you look at your windshield, right? Because you're looking to see if somebody has left a note. And when you see that there's no note, you, you're feeling and thinking a variety of different things, uh, many of which we won't talk about today. But one of the things that you're thinking in that moment is, is you're thinking that you want to, you have a desire for justice. You want justice in that moment. You wanted the person responsible to pay for their crime. And that desire for justice, that's a good and godly thing. It's one way that we image our just creator. So we long for Christ's return because we want justice. God will make all the things that are wrong in this world. He will make those right when he returns. Everything that is wrong will be made right. So there's there's lots of things that could be said about judgment, but we're, we're not going to talk about many of those. We can leave that for another day, uh, another sermon. But just a few highlights from this passage 
in Matthew 24 that, that relates to judgment. And the first thing is that the coming judgment will be irreversible. And I think that's hard for us to understand, something that is irreversible. Uh, we've become accustomed to not having irreversible uh, decisions or, or things that happen to us. Uh, just a couple of examples. If you, if you die in a video game, what happens? Well, you pop back up. You know, you, you get another chance. If you choose the wrong major or the wrong class, well, you can just drop that class or you can choose a different major. If you marry the wrong person, what does our society say? Just get a divorce. You start over. You get a do-over. And of course, it's not that way when Christ returns. There are no second ch chances. Uh, we actually see this more clearly in chapter 25 of Matthew when Jesus talks about the bridesmaids who weren't ready when the wedding started. So there, he tells the story of bridesmaids who are preparing for a wedding feast. And then they go off and do their own thing. And when it's time for the wedding, the doors are shut and they can't get in. They're shut out. They're not allowed to participate in that wedding feast. But we see it here as well, starting in verse 45. And Jesus tells of servants who weren't ready when their master returned. And so what happens to those servants? Well, they're cast out. They're cast out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's, there's no second chances. There's no do-overs. What you believe right now matters not just for right now. What you believe right now matters for all of eternity. And further, when Jesus returns, it, it's clear that we stand alone. There's two men working together. One's taken and one is left. Two women, one taken and the other left. So on that day, schools... Workplaces, communities, cities, countries will be separated into one of two groups, either those with Christ or without Christ. There, there's not a third option. On the day Christ returns, it, it matters not who you're married to or whose child you are, what country you claim, what political party you voted for. We all stand alone at that time. And that's, that's sobering. For us to think about. So if you're a believer in Christ, the reality of Christ's return in judgment should primarily stir up in you, not fear when we think about Christ returning in judgment. What we ought to think about, what it ought to ignite in us is love and affection. So in this passage, let, let's not be mistaken, in this passage, those servants deserve to be punished. They didn't do what the master commanded. And so they deserve to be punished. And I am one of those servants. And friends, I would tell you that you are one of those servants as well, except for Jesus. It's only because of Jesus, the, the wise and faithful servant. It's only because of Jesus that we are not cast out. There's a judgment coming that I rightly deserve, and yet I won't receive it, and not because of anything that I've done. It's only because of what Jesus has done for me. On the cross, Jesus took the full measure of my punishment. He, he drained the cup of God's wrath, every last drop of that. And I should, my response to that is that I ought to fall on my knees and I ought to worship the one who gave everything for me, for me, the one that deserves nothing, and yet he gave everything for me. So we should long for his return 
so that we can thank him in person for everything that he's done for us. Friends, I said it a moment ago, I'll say it again. What you believe makes a difference now and for eternity. There are no second chances. So don't be fooled. If you've been living your life apart from Christ, or if you've been living one way in front of your Christian friends and another way away from your Christian friends, all of that is going to be exposed. There is a coming judgment. So don't wait until that moment when Christ returns, because by then it will be too late. So everyone in this room can be sure of their salvation. You can be sure of your eternal fate. You can be sure of your standing before God today. And I would encourage you, don't leave today without having made that clear in your own mind. There's dozens of people in this room that would love to talk with you about that. So after we're finished, turn to the person sitting next to you and ask them some questions. Talk with them. Open yourself up to them. The one who's speaking here in Matthew 24, the one who is speaking about the coming judgment is the one who can save you from that coming judgment. And salvation isn't based on our our own works, it's based on the finished work of Christ. He lived the life that we're not able to live. So put your trust in him so that your life will be secure in him. So the third thing that we're going to talk about from this passage, we're going to spend most of our time here, and it's on preparation. So there's really only one way that we can, that we should respond to Jesus' teaching about his his return, about his coming judgment. There's only one way that we ought to respond, and that is that we should be preparing. We should be preparing. We see that in verse 44. It says, therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So readiness, preparation. What, what does that involve for the believer in Christ? Well, again, remember that we don't know when Christ is going to return. And one of the points that Jesus is making is that his return will be a surprise. And he uses the example again from, from Noah, from Genesis, to help us to understand that. Jesus draws attention to, to the, 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 the sheer normality of life in the time of Noah before the flood. He says, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood took them by surprise and it utterly destroyed them. And in a similar manner, the homeowner, the master of the house, doesn't know when the thief is going to come. He's caught off guard. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So faithful servants should always be ready. They should, they should stay awake. We should stay awake. So we have to have patience because we don't know when that day is coming. So what does it mean to wait? Well, the Christians should be well-versed in waiting. We, we see our, ourselves commanded to wait over and over and over in Scripture. Many of, of the heroes of our faith waited. Abraham waited, not always well, for his promised son, The children of Israel waited, again, not always well, to get into the promised land. Israel waited, not always well, for the promised Messiah. And so the church is to wait for Christ to return. And we should do that well. We should wait well. 
So what does it mean to wait? Well, 1 Thessalonians, uh, in that book, Paul speaks at length about Christ's return. And uh, we're going to look at just a, a passage from there, chapter 1. So the Apostle Paul, he's commending the church at Thessalonica. He's commending the Thessalonians for their faithfulness to the gospel. He starts off that letter by just praising them and encouraging them. And so he says, And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So church, I think it's really interesting here that in talking about Christ returning, Paul is commending this church for serving even as he praises them for waiting. I think that's really interesting, kind of strange. You you wouldn't think of putting those together, serving and waiting and equating them or, or lumping them into the same category, and yet that is what Paul is doing here. As we wait, we serve. Waiting for Christ to return is an active wait. It's it's sort of like a groom who is waiting for his bride to walk down the aisle. It's an active, anticipatory wait. So he's done a lot to prepare for that moment as he's waiting for his bride to come down the aisle. Hopefully, he's talked to his friends, he's talked to his family, he's talked to church members about this woman and about the wisdom of, of, of marrying her. He's, he's bought a ring, and he's proposed, and hopefully he's done it in that order. He's gathered a couple friends to stand with him as he enters into this marriage. He's bought or rented some clothes. He's gone through premarital counseling. There's a lot of preparation that's taken place before he gets married. And he's done all of those things with, with an eye towards his bride walking down the aisle. It's an active wait. So do you think about the second coming of Christ like that? Let me give you another example. When my wife, when Katina was pregnant with our second child, uh, we knew a little bit more about what to expect from the process because we'd been through it once before. So we were waiting for our daughter to be born in early January. But it was, an, it was an active wait. And we started that active wait early in December, maybe even in November. And the reason we started that uh, wait is because our son had been born a month early. And we were taught completely, or caught completely off guard for that. Uh, car seat was not bought. Uh, crib was not put together. It was, it was a mess. We were not prepared for that. But this time, with our second, we had the car seat ready. We had the crib put together. We were completely ready for the coming of this child. My cell phone was always at hand. We were waiting for the call. This baby wasn't going to catch us off guard. So we were waiting for this child, but it was an active wait. I was still going to work. I wasn't just sitting at home and twiddling my thumbs. It was an active wait. I was still working. As Paul would say, I was still serving still doing my normal activities, but we were preparing for our daughter all along the way. So do you think about the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ like that? Just like we didn't know when our second child was coming, we were preparing for her. We too know that Christ is coming, and we should be preparing for him to come. 
So the reality of Jesus' return shouldn't cause us to just sit on our hands and wait. Rather, it should hit us in such a way that it affects everything. It affects everything that we do. When the reality of his return is real, we, we can't wait to see him. There's an anticipation and a preparation that inherently goes along when you're expecting somebody that you're waiting for. So let's talk about preparation for just a moment. Uh, what does preparation mean? Well, just as I carried on with my normal activities as we were waiting for our, our daughter to be born, we too should be actively preparing for Christ. We should live with the reality that he will return. That thought should always be within reach, somewhere in our minds. Uh, go back to, to verse 44. Jesus said, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, it, it's impossible to tell in English, but that's a plural you. It says, therefore, you all must be ready. And friends, in our sermon series on the church, have we not seen that our life is not just about us, that our life is not to be lived in solitude or in isolation, that we need each other? Even the examples that I gave a moment ago of, of, being, of getting married or having kids those are not supposed to be individual activities. Those are supposed to be things that you prepare to get, you, you, you're preparing for marriage within the confines of your church family. You're preparing for a family. You're preparing to get a child. You're getting ready for that with the help of your church family. That should be something that we do together. So back to verse 44. It says, therefore you all, or all y'all, or you folks, or the collective plural you. Therefore, you all must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so we should go on with our lives then, spending time in prayer. We should do that individually and corporately. We should spend time uh, reading scripture individually and corporately. We should spend time with other believers even encouraging each other, reminding each other that Christ is coming to prepare, to get ready for his return. We should work our jobs, not in isolation, but sharing the burdens and the joys of our, joys, of our jobs. So when we are struggling at work, we ask for prayer for that. When we get a promotion, we share that in joy with each other. We care for our families together. We, we don't do that behind closed doors where no one is watching where there's no one to interact. No, we, we share and open our homes. We invite people into our lives. That is what we are called to do. You all should be preparing. One other thing that's obvious from Jesus in terms of preparation in this passage, there should be an earnestness and an urgency in the opportunities that we have to share the gospel. Before we see that in Matthew, uh, let's go back to that First Thessalonians passage. And Paul, if you remember, Paul was commending the church for serving and for waiting. And if we, we go back a couple of verses to verses 6 through 8, we see that part of the service that he was commending them for was in sharing the gospel. So he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. 
For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Isn't that amazing when you, when you realize what he's saying here? He's, Paul is, is saying that he and his missionary companions, that their work was done for them. Their work of sharing the gospel, their work of giving witness and testimony was done for them by the church. The church did the work of sharing the gospel so that there was nothing that they needed to say. So in Matthew, we, we see two groups of people. They're mentioned over and over. There's the wise servant and there's the wicked servant. There's the master of the house who is ready. There's the master of the house who's sleeping. There's two men in the field, two women at the mill. There's only two groups of people in this world. So two men working in the field. I think the implication is clear. Two men working in the field. As we work, share Christ with your coworker. You don't know whether that coworker is going to be with Christ or without Christ. Share Christ. Two women preparing for their families. As we live in community with our neighbors, as we share life with each other, share Christ with her. She is important to God, and she's important to you. Friends, we, we prepare for Christ's return by living for him today in every aspect of our lives, and we do that as the church. So this realization, I think, should give new meaning to our sermon series on the church. We started, if you remember, five weeks ago with the most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We live as citizens of God's kingdom. We live as citizens of God's kingdom, made righteous by Jesus and living under his rule. So we anticipate Christ when we live together corporately as citizens of a new kingdom. We then move to Matthew 16. We heard Peter's confession as the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the living Son of God. So we look to Christ's return when we guard that gospel, when we affirm the truth of heaven and rightly recognize those who've made a true confession of Christ. Third, we heard Jesus give the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Remembering that there are two groups of people, those with Christ and those without. So we prepare for Christ's return by making disciples of all people under the authority of Jesus. Two weeks ago, we saw Jesus institute the Lord's Supper. So when we take communion together collectively, we're anticipating his return by remembering Jesus as Savior through that corporate observance of the Lord's Supper. And then last week, we were in Matthew 18. We, we take seriously the command to guard the gospel, keep watch over our brothers and sisters. And we show that we long for Christ by discipling the members of his church and even disciplining the members of his church. So do you see that we prepare for Christ's return together? We anticipate his return together. We, we do all of this together. We do this as a church family. So there's a preparation for Christ's return, but there's also an anticipation, <clears throat> anticipation of his return. And that anticipation is not emotionless. So it's born of love, and it's born from love. 
<clears throat> so let me give you just, just one example of that. There's been a few occasions in our marriage that my wife has been out of town. And when she is out of town, I miss her. I think of her often. And that's not just because I'm having to pull double duty with the kids and the chores and all those things. Be because I love her, I miss her. I think of her often. I call her. I anxiously anticipate her return. So in the same way, we should anticipate for Christ to return, not out of duty, not out of obligation. We do so because we love him, because we want to be united with him. So I think maybe an important question to ask at this point is, do you love the world more than you love Jesus? Because these illustrations that I use don't really make sense if you love the world more than Jesus. If I loved having only one child more than I loved or anticipated adding to our family, I wouldn't have prepared for our second child. I wouldn't have cared that she was coming. If I, if I loved being home without my wife more than I loved being home with my wife, I wouldn't anticipate her returning. I wouldn't think of her. I wouldn't be ready for her to return. We're not going to prepare for Jesus if we love the world more than we love Jesus. So do you love the world more than you love Jesus? And I think if we're honest, our answer to that is yes, at least sometimes. At least that's for me. There are times that I love the world more than I love Jesus. And so if, if that's you as well, let me, let me leave a couple of questions, a couple of things for us to help understand maybe what areas of the world do we love more than Jesus? In what ways are we loving the world more than we love Jesus? So these are the types of questions that I would encourage you to talk about in your GC. Uh, talk about them with the person sitting next to you would encourage you to, to, to do this together in community. God calls us to examine our lives, and there's no better time for us to do that than a passage that's talking about his return, talking about him coming back. So how would you live differently today, this afternoon, if you really believed that Jesus was returning soon? It's a similar question to living our lives with the truth that we could die at any moment. So we're not in control of our mortality. We're not in control of when Christ is going to return. But when we live with the reality of, of Christ returning on our minds, then we, we are reminded of the temporariness of our lives. Our lives are just a short span, and eternity is longer than we can possibly conceive of. So given that short span of our lives, what about your priorities would you change? Would you treat people differently if more often you remembered Christ returning? Would you deal with your money differently if you thought of the folly of materialism, recognizing that Christ is returning soon? Would you be more patient with those around you, knowing that the time with them is actually short? What would you like to be doing? What would you like to be saying? What would you like to be thinking? What would you like to be planning when Christ returns?
Are you living your life with a sense of urgency for Christ? Or are you living your life with a sense of urgency for yourself? Shouldn't we plan out and order our days so that our life is centered on Christ? And if you're a believer in Christ, that is, you claim Jesus as your Lord, as your Savior, is what you're professing with your mouth matching? Is it matching what you're actually doing as we wait expectantly for Christ to return? In other words, are you living out what you say you believe? Now, I, I know, church, these are, these are tough questions. That's why I said I think we ought to talk about these in community. We ought to try to understand what areas of my life am I loving the world more than I love Jesus? So are you living in light of Christ's return? And as we close... The church looks forward to Christ's return with preparation and in, and in anticipation. The church longs for Christ. So we, we live in a messed up world that even though it's messed up in crazy ways, there are still strong temptations in our lives. And though it's tempting to focus on our circumstances, whether we're talking about circumstances of strife or struggle, bad health, persecution, whatever it might be, or if we're focusing on our circumstances of of just trying to get all the good things that the world has to offer, our primary focus should be on Christ, not on our circumstances. He is our, our focus. He is our goal. He is our aim. The church longs for Jesus because Jesus has been astoundingly good to us. And he's the absolute very best thing for us to look forward to. A moment ago I said that that we, that you and I, we're we're just like the servants who should have been cast out. We're we're the disobedient servants, except for Jesus. It's only because of Jesus that we weren't cast out. So we should long for his return, and we should do so because we love Christ. This won't be on the screens, but this is 1 Peter 1.8. It says, though you have not seen him, though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So we don't see Jesus. We don't know when he's returning, but do you love him? The one who did everything, everything for me, the servant who disobeyed, the one who did everything for me is returning and I get to thank him for what he's done for me. So why did Jesus tell of his return? Why did he tell us about that? Well, he tells us so that we can look forward to his return. We can do that collectively as his people. We can look forward to that sweet union that we're going to have with the one who has done everything for me. He wants us to look forward with joy to his return. So we anticipate by preparing for his return, because it's a sweet union with the one who has done so much for us. And may we be a people who are preparing for and who live expectantly for the return of our king. Let's pray.
God, we thank you that you are faithful to your promises to us. And God, we don't deserve what you have given us in your son. So God, help us to not take him for granted. Help us to look anxiously with anticipation. Help us to prepare for the return of Christ. God, I pray that that would change our lives, both individually and as as a church family, that we would always be thinking, always have somewhere in our minds the knowledge and the anticipation of, of the return of Christ. God, we thank you for your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.